This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett. Welcome to our latest chapter, this one entitled Paul. Now, as we left my story off, I had just been let go by Live 105. This time for the final time. As you may remember, seven years earlier, I'd been let go by them. But they learned their lesson, and for seven straight years, they made a fortune off of me. And that's fine, because that's what my job is to do, because I made a fortune off of them as well. And things were wonderful, and all of a sudden, one day, as uh, things happen in this business, without rhyme, without reason, I was out the door and long gone. So anyway, uh, you got to figure out what you're going to do next with your life. And I had an idea, but in order to set this all up, I'm going to have to tell a fairly long story that goes back to uh, 1988. Now, I have always been, and I guess I haven't talked about this much, I've always had a hobby of video. I've loved shooting video. It started actually shooting film and then it went into and editing it, and then it went into video because I saw that as a fast way in which I went all over Europe lugging what they called a porta pack, which weighed about, eh, God, 15, 20 pounds, right? When the camera was another five pounds. And I would uh, go all over the place, Europe and all my stuff. And it was just a reel to reel video machine, and I would uh, take that wherever I went on vacations. Oh, man, I was lugging a lot of stuff back in those days. To think that I could do today a better job of what I did then with just an iPhone is, to me, amazing. But anyway, my video had always been my passion. That's what got me into Midnight Blue. And so uh, being a big video head as it was, I was always paying attention to the newest thing coming along. And one day while reading one of the many periodicals I would read about technical stuff about video and computers and so on, I read an article about a company out in Topeka, Kansas, that was creating something it called the Video Toaster. Now, the Video Toaster was going to be, at that point, a literally a card that went into an Amiga computer and would then be able to do what a television studio does switch cameras, do rollovers, put up titles, do all kinds of things, and it was only going to cost $1,295. Uh, this is a dream. This is a real dream. But I, I waited because time was on my side. I was still young, and uh, it was still four, about four years away or maybe three years away before the evolution of this uh, product uh, came to pass. And one day, I get a call from a friend of mine's brother. Now, my friend happened to be Dana Carvey. Dana Carvey, yes, the Dana Carvey from Saturday Night Live. And he, he had a brother, and his name was Brad. And Brad called me or wrote me, I can't remember which, and said, I just wanted to say I've always been a big fan of yours, and I would love to get together and have lunch with you someday. And, you know, I'm Dana's brother. Would you like to do that? Well, I had read in one of these articles that the guy who was helping to build this video toaster was a guy by the name of Brad Carvey, and he happened to be Dana Carvey's brother. So I said, sure. And so we got together, and we had lunch, 
And I told him, he said, you are, he says, you're such a hero of mine. You know, all the wonderful things you've done on radio, blah, 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 blah. And I said to him, no, consequently, there is a bigger story here. I am, in fact, a fan of yours. You are a hero of mine. This thing you're building, the video toaster. And then I told him all about my video background and so on. And that this thing held a lot of promise. And he told me a lot about it, that they, yes, they were building it. They had a, a working prototype on this deal. It wasn't just uh, uh, something that was, you know, floating around in their heads. It was something that had literally become a reality. And uh, he said, would you like to meet uh, some of the people who had something to do with it and who are the heads of the company? And I said, I would love to. He said, I'll arrange a, a lunch. And so we had another lunch. And this time, and I can't remember, I know that my friend Paul was there. And I think Tim Jennison was with him. Tim was the uh, the president of and the CEO of a company called New Tech. And this was the company that was building the video toaster out in, of all places, Topeka, Kansas. So anyway, I uh, I, I had lunch with him. And I just told them, you know, what what an incredible thing this was going to be. And they said, well, it's going to come to pass. We have a, a working model. And they invited me to come out to Topeka to kind of see what they were doing and so on. Well, in the meantime, Paul and I struck up a conversation. And it was like we were immediately friends because we were both fans of the same thing. And that was technology and video and what technology and video could do together and how you could build a device like this one that would go into just a home, regular home computer uh, called the Amiga that would allow people to have at their fingertips the same ability that a major TV studio would have and all on a little card. And I always liked that because what it would do is it would give the masses access to the equipment. You know, the thing that had always been a stopgap for talented people who wanted to do video, who wanted to do film, was the cost involved. If I wanted to really make a movie, I had to have a movie company behind me. Or I had to be ready to, even if I was going to do an independent film, spend $100,000 to make a movie. To do video... I'd have to have a whole TV studio. But what this thing would do is for something like a, uh, oh, I don't know, a $1,500 computer and a $1,295 card that goes in that computer, you're now switching TV. You've got yourself a TV studio. And I just thought this was the most wonderful thing in the whole world. So, of course, I, I, I went out to Topeka and, and saw what they were building, and I was just uh, blown away by it. But in the process, I got to know Paul. Uh, Paul Montgomery, how do I describe Paul? Paul was a visionary who saw things, not as they are, but how they could be, and took things and said, hey, you can do this with something and that with something, and here's how. But more than that, he was a salesman. That was his biggest asset. Was he? You can build the greatest little gizmo, the greatest little device, and if no one hears about it, forget it. Your device sits on the shelf. But if you've got somebody who knows how to promote it, and he knew how to promote it, the future of the video toaster was getting in every major computer magazine in America, and everybody was waiting for this thing. And now I was seeing it at work. And in fact, one of the first 
uh, pieces of equipment that a video toaster got installed in was my computer at home. They came by one day and they said, okay, we got the video toaster. You've got the Amiga. Let's rip. And they got it going. And I, after that moment, I, things were never the same. I saw the future of video. It meant that everybody, you, me, the little guy who, who wanted to make TV but couldn't, could now make TV. Uh, and it, it, it really was an amazing, amazing thing. And it, uh, it debuted finally in 1990, a couple of years after I first met them. And I would go out to Topeka every now and then. They would have Christmas parties out in Topeka. In fact, I would do my show from Topeka. Uh, why? I found myself going to this town, which somebody once described as not being in the middle of nowhere, but you can see the middle of nowhere from there. And uh, I would go out there, and they would have these, they would have these parties, they would have these Christmas parties, and they would invite all their friends and everything. And after a while, they started renting personalities to come to these parties. Uh, G- Jimmy Doohan from uh, uh, Star Trek, and uh, a fan of the video toaster, and the, one of the first people to do a video with it was a guy by the name of Todd Rundgren. And uh, Todd would come out every year to these parties. He Actually, what he did is... They not only built the video toaster, but they had a little program sitting around that a guy had built called Lightwave, which exists to this day and you've seen used in movies. And what it was was a 3D animation program. And it was built into the video toaster. And uh, why? Just to give it added value, okay? In fact, the guy that created the, vi- the Lightwave uh, program actually came to my apartment and taught me how to use it. So, I mean, I was like I was like a pig in shit for a guy who loved video. And I was doing this in, on top of my radio broadcast, get, mind you. And uh, it, was just, it, was, uh, it was just this wonderful piece of equipment. Well, in the meantime, I got to know Paul really well. I mean, so well that I think I could say that at the time, Paul uh, Montgomery was my best friend. Uh, uh, he would come to San Francisco and we would hang out. And then when I would go out for those Christmas parties out in Topeka, we would hang out. But still, there was a big distance between us, and, and we, couldn't, we couldn't get that close as friends. But in 1994, he and New Tech split up, parted ways. He and Tim Jennison had some kind of argument. I don't know exactly what it was, and I never wanted to get in the middle of it because I liked both these guys. But Paul was my friend. Tim was my acquaintance, okay? And so, of course, I was going to be Paul's friend to the end. And when, you know, it's like when couples break up, uh, all their friends are expected to kind of take sides. Well, that's what happens in a situation like this. You know, you're either for one person or you're for the other, and that's it. And Paul was my friend, and as I say, uh, 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 Tim was my uh, my acquaintance, and so I kept staying in contact with Paul. Well, Paul moved a lot of the people from New Tech with him out to California. And I remember that they were they had their startup, and they were going to call the new company Play Incorporated. Great name for a company. Surprising nobody else had ever thought of that name. But they called it Play Incorporated, and I remember their first, uh, their, their first offices was an apartment 
in the Castro District of San Francisco, and they would all meet in the living room, and they had a whiteboard, and they would try and figure out now. They had a name for a company, but what the hell were they going to do with this company? Don't worry, folks. There's a reason I'm telling you this whole story. And so uh, under the tutelage of Paul, who was the president now of Play Incorporated or the CEO or whatever the title was, uh, they um, started to come up with little things to do. And the first gizmo they came up with was a thing called Snappy. And then what they decided was they couldn't do it alone. They had to have a company to go with them. And there was a thing called Progressive Image Technologies out of Sacramento and the guy who ran that wanted in on Play Incorporated, and so they combined the two companies, and Paul moved to Sacramento, which still was a lot closer to me than Topeka, Kansas. So he started Play Incorporated in a building in an industrial park in Sacramento, California. And it was there that they finished building and creating the Snappy with the use of this guy's technical expertise, because PIT literally created hardware for computers like the Amiga, but they decided no more Amigas anymore. This thing was going with a PC because we got to go where the money is. And they got this little thing going called Snappy. And what it was was a little, uh, what kind of a dongle is what they're usually called. And you put it in the port in your computer uh, and... Um, then you would run the software program, and let's say you had a video, and there was grandma and all the kids in the video. You could still frame the video and then video capture it, and it did a really nice video capture. And they put this thing on the market, and it made a fortune. Paul always told me, he said, I'm going to take you on the uh, Concord the day this thing sells one million. Well, we never got to a million and I'll tell you why in, in, in a little bit here. But the question was, what was Play Incorporated going to do next? And what it did next was not unsurprising. Uh, Snappy, which did this video snapshot, was a lot like an early product that they had out at New Tech. And now he wanted to build something like the video toaster, but better. I mean, the ultimate TV station in a box. And for a couple of years, they worked on a thing called the Trinity. They called it Trinity because they kind of named it not after the Holy Trinity, but after Trinity, which was the atomic test out in the desert uh, years earlier. And they felt this was going to be an explosion too, so they, they called it Trinity. They always like to call their stuff uh, stuff that you know people would go, why are you calling it Trinity? What's that supposed to mean? And they built this thing, and it was magnificent. I got to tell you, folks, I mean, I had a couple of them in my apartment in San Francisco, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. These things could literally, like they were, be in my apartment. I hook up a couple of cameras. It did the character generation, you know, all the titles and the lower thirds and the flip-flops and the switches, and you could uh, hook up like four cameras to the damn th I mean, it was amazing. Now, it wasn't like the video toaster, which was really cheap and fit on a card in a computer. This thing was a box on its own that did all the work, and... Um, uh, cost, uh, I think uh, the cheapest one was about four or $5,000, if I'm not mistaken. 
But nevertheless, it would be great for colleges and, and, and some hobbyists who had a bit of money to put out. And I was in the middle of watching all this go on and watching this, this absolute marketing genius named Paul Montgomery uh, build this company and get all this publicity. And they even won Emmys and all kinds of things for the stuff they did at Play Incorporated. But let me, let me say this, that Paul and I had something very in common. And that thing that we had in common was that we couldn't build one of these things, but we could imagine them. We knew what we wanted to play with, okay, if you can get that analogy. We knew what we wanted to play with. We just needed someone to build them. And Paul could envision what he wanted to play with. And that's how this company worked. And it, it, had, it had some absolute geniuses working there. And I was so happy to see him doing well. Uh, in fact, you know, it's interesting. We, it, we, I would go up and see him and we'd talk about stuff. And one time he said to me, you know, he says, I'm going to make a million dollars this year. And I said, I'm so happy for you. And he said, yeah, why? I said, because in my business, my feeling of success is a good rating book, okay? It isn't how much money I make. It's how many people are listening to me. In what you do, the measure of how good you are is how much money you make. And he said, it's a good analogy. He said, because it isn't about the money. You know, it's about, hey, this is showing that I'm successful at what I'm doing. And we became great friends. I mean, uh, I would go up to Sacramento and then uh, we would decide at the last minute, hey, it's a weekend. Let's go up to Lake Tahoe overnight and do some gambling. And we would go up to Lake Tahoe and do some gambling. And I, uh, I got to know a guy out in the Nevada desert by the name of Dennis Hoff, and he was he'd taken over a place called the Moonlight Bunny Ranch, and he'd started coming on my radio show, and Paul loved it when I took him over to the Moonlight Bunny Ranch. Now, yes, Paul was married to a very wonderful woman, a very a sexy woman, uh, but he loved nothing more than for me to take him over to the Moonlight Bunny Ranch. Now, you got to realize that by this time, Paul had a lot of money to throw around. And we would go to the Moonlight Bunny Ranch. And uh, I never had sex at the Moonlight Bunny Ranch. Uh, uh, Dennis always offered me, hey, any woman in the house you want, yours, all you have to pay for is her half of the, of the take on it. Because we'll give up, I'll give up my share. Because the girl had to get paid, you know. Uh, and, and he didn't want to have to pay for it. But, he, you know, he made me a deal. And I never took him up on the deal. He will, he will say it to the, till the cows come home. No, Alex never, ever had sex at the Moonlight Bunny Ranch. And it, the reason was is that I was just the type that just, the idea of a prostitute just didn't appeal to me. And the reason it didn't appeal to me was because I always liked conquest. And paying somebody isn't conquest. But I would take uh, uh, Paul to the Moonlight Bunny Ranch. And when we go there, he would pick a woman and go into a room. Now, about I'd sit around the, you know, in the in the in the lobby of uh, of the Boonlight Bunny Ranch, talking to people, talking to the women, doing whatever while he was inside doing whatever he was doing, and then he would come out. 
And I would say, well, how did it go? And he said, oh, it went great. I said, was she good? He said, well, that's not the point. We didn't have sex. I said, what? He says, I just wanted to talk. And he, he spent the whole time talking to her, and then at the end of it gave her, I think, 500 bucks for just talking to him. And I said, you didn't have sex? And he said, no. And I said, why? He said, it's not about the sex. He said, it isn't? He said, no. It's about the power. I didn't know how to react to that. You know, part of it was chauvinistic as hell, but the other part of it was, uh, I suppose, thinking that was, um, in many ways, quite accurate. So anyway, uh, he loved to go there, and if if you you know if his uh, wife is, I don't know where she is these days, ever came to me and said, "Did he ever cheat on me?" I'd have to go, no. Because he really didn't. He just paid a woman 500 bucks to talk. And I knew Paul wasn't lying to me, but that's what I loved about Paul. And Paul and I just had these little adventures, and we would go places, and we would hang out, and so on. Well, anyway, here's why I'm telling that whole story about Paul. Because I had to bring me up to the point where I got fired at Live 105. One of the first calls I made after I got let go was I called Paul and I said guess what and he said what I said I just got dumped he says the station let you go I said yeah he says that's great I said what's great about it I'm out of work he says no you're not he says I want you to come to work for us he says I want you to come to work for us and I want you to just sit around for a while and figure out what it is you want to do with broadcasting, and then we will make it happen. And I thought that was just the most wonderful idea in the world. I had gotten to the point where I was sick of radio, sick of the ratings every month, sick of the games you had to play, the crow you had to eat in order to survive. So, you know, this seemed like a wonderful, wonderful thing to me. The only problem was the job was in Sacramento and I was in San Francisco. And Paul said, look, you don't have to be up here every day. Wherever you are is your office. But we'll give you an office up here and come up a couple of days a week, sit in that office and figure out what you're going to do. So I came up and I, I I had some qualms about it. And one of the qualms I had about it was I had learned years earlier, never do business with friends because what happens is you'll find out that you're no longer friends. I mean, that happened with Al Goldstein with Midnight Blue where we were really close friends and then we went into business with each other and the whole dynamic of the relationship changed. So I was a little worried about that. I even mentioned it to Paul and Paul said, don't worry about it. So I became an employee of Play Incorporated, and they were giving me a very nice salary, too, I might add, to just go up there a couple of days a week, sit in an office. All I had was a computer and a chair and another chair that could, somebody could sit in, talk to me. And I would just sit there for eight hours at a time. Paul would come in every now and then and say, hi, what's happening? What do you think? What's going on? And so on. And I couldn't figure out, I was trying to figure out what we could do, actually. In the meantime, 
at home in San Francisco each and every night for lack of being able to do a radio program. I always felt I had to do a radio program, so I was doing one thing and another. And part of it was every day I was turning out what I called a, um, a little program that you could go to my website and download and then play. All right? It's making sense to you? And then I had another guy I knew who was a little computer hacker, and uh, he said, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we uh, build a program that uh, people can set at home on their computer, and it will go to your, mach- your website every day and download the program you do? Sound like anything to you folks? Sound like the beginning of something? Actually, what we had invented was the podcast. What does a podcast do? You have a podcast, and then uh, your computer goes to the podcast and picks it up every day and lays it on your on your iPhone or on your computer or whatever. We had invented that by doing these little programs. Well, now I decided, hey, you know, what if I do these programs live? And I, I mentioned this to, to Paul, and Paul said, I, and I can't remember how we transmitted it. We may have well used a, a server that Play had. And he said, oh, yeah, try doing a show live. Okay, so I started to try doing a show live. And then I had this guy out in the East Bay who kind of, you know, liked radio and kind of was a fan of mine. His name was Will Wilkins. And he said, I'd love to do a show too. And I said, go ahead. So he did a show. Now, this is, believe me, this is all before anybody is doing live programming on the Internet to any appreciable extent. And then we met up with another guy who used to call my show, and he called himself Revel Stoke Jim. And I said, hey, you want to do a show? And you know, I was giving shows away to anybody who wanted them. And he said, yeah, I'll do a show. So now we had a little network, and I called it Play. All right? And uh, Paul loved what was going on with this thing. He says, what if we put a television component to this? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I'll put a a Trinity in your apartment in San Francisco. I'll put a Trinity uh, where Will Wilkins is, and then we'll send somebody up to Revelstoke, British Columbia, to put a Trinity in Revelstoke Jim's home up there. And we can do these shows all day. And then... It was kind of decided also that they could do shows from Sacramento. And so we had some other people like Kiki Stockhammer and Two Guys on a Couch was the other show. And before we knew it, we had a full-blown Internet television network. Who else on the face of the earth had a television Internet network? Nobody. We were the first ones to do it. And we had programming going out 12 hours a day. But the problem with all of this was, and it was a major problem, okay, uh, nobody had the equipment to pick it up. I mean, we sent out a low signal and we sent out a high signal. The only way to really see it well was to take the high bandwidth feed, which was about 300 megabytes a second. But very few people had that. But we had the bandwidth. We had uh, people who were repurposing our signal and sending it out to the world. So anybody that wanted to watch it live could. But, you know, the viewership wasn't high, as I say, because these are the days, you know, before people were really getting into the Internet. I had just invented the podcast, okay? 
uh, and and uh, all these things were were not really. If we'd been, you know, I've often have said before, you know, it's always better to be the second guy who does something than the first guy who does it, because the first guy who does it has to teach everybody about this thing, and it has to teach the audience to want it. And we were in that process of having to teach an audience to want a television show coming over the Internet. A lot of people didn't even have the bandwidth at home. I mean, most uh, modems were 28 BPS modems, uh, you know, KBPS modems. And, and, and so the, most modems couldn't even pick up the high bandwidth signal. But we were having a great time doing it, and this was going on for, for quite a while. And I got to tell you, it is it is one of the most inventive moments of my life. That may be Midnight Blue, okay? Because here was something that had never been done before, and we were doing it. We had a 12-hour day internet television broadcast organization. It was a network that didn't need what the networks had to have in order to broadcast. But that wasn't the end of the story. The end of the story was a sad one, and we'll get to that next time. This has been Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett.